So, uh, yeah, those days of young children are long gone. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. My name is Pastor Ray Cosley. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Way. And if you're visiting with us, we're just so glad that you're here. And we pray that in some way you would encounter the name. And uh, before I say that again, just an encouragement that uh, with our congregational meeting, yeah, we have some just encouraging, wonderful uh, things to share. And so please, if you consider Living Way your home in any way, shape, or form, this invitation is for all you guys just to join us at one o'clock. If I could have us stand, and we're going to recite our values as a church, and these are just who we are. Uh, I'm going to say the value, and then we're going to read the statement together. A gospel-centered life. The gospel is the basis of our intimacy with God and our power for true transformation. A gospel-revealing community. By our love that transcends all natural bonds, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples. Unapologetic proclamation of Scripture. We stand on the solid rock of Scripture without compromise, for all other ground is sinking sand. Church as family. We as followers of Jesus pursue his vision of family through our deep and mutual commitment, interdependence, and affection. And lastly, a missional community. We join God's mission to make disciples by demonstrating tangibly the power of the gospel in our city and in the world. You may be seated. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever asked the question, where is God? There are those seasons when the chaos careens with almost apparent carelessness through our lives and in the world, leaving sometimes many of us shattered. Where was God? Or when the unrelenting darkness descends in some way, shape, or form in your life, we ask the question, where is God? When that arid wind we don't even understand blows across the landscape of our lives, the question either in our mind and our hearts and sometimes out loud is where is God? And we cry to God in our anguish. We cry to God in our confusion. We look to God, and yet all we hear is silence. He seems, if you will, absent. Maybe you felt that way before. I'm sure if you've lived life long enough, you have. And maybe some of you even now are feeling just that. Well, I want to share a historical account of an entire people group who could have and probably were very easily asking that same question, where is God? And I want you to see just how God responded. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Esther, the book of Esther. And if you will, when you get there, bow with me in prayer. The book of Esther in the Old Testament. God, we just come before you this morning. God, and I'm sure every one of us have asked that question, and many of us may be even asking it now. 
And even if we aren't asking it now, we probably know someone who may be struggling and needs this encouragement. God, I just pray for every individual that, God, you would help them to see that you are not silent nor absent. And that you, Lord God, in your loving and caring way would meet them. God, there may be here people here who have come because they've been invited by someone. And maybe they, Lord God, have wondered if there even is a God. God, I pray that you would even meet them where they are. That they in some way, shape, or form would be able to see the beauty and the wonder of why we celebrate this thing called Christmas. So God, please meet us. Do it not by might nor by power, nor by, Lord God, my small capabilities. But Lord, will you do this by the spirit of the living God? And we come against every evil foe, spiritual and physical, that wants to exert its force in some way. And we just command you in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. Based on the authority that belongs to us in the heavens, you are not welcome. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, we find ourselves almost 500 years before Christmas in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And the king is Asuherus, better known historically as Xerxes. The Jews have recently been released from Babylonian captivity, and many of those Jews during that time went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But yet there were also many Jews who actually stayed back in Persia, and they remained there for some time, enjoying a fragile level of autonomy as they found themselves not only not under Babylonian rule, but now Persian rule. And in chapter 1 of Esther, King Ahasuerus is in the midst of bolstering support for a military campaign to defeat his grandfather's old nemesis, the Greeks. So for six months, he parades his leaders all throughout the Persian Empire, showing off his riches, showing off his greatness, that they in the empire would be bolstered and strengthened and encouraged that the Persian Empire would indeed find themselves on the right side of this conflict. And so the king throws an extravagant seven-day feast. And this is where we find ourselves in chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who were served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within. Well, if I can use maybe at least for me a sanctified imagination, Queen Vashti just wasn't having it. 
He wanted to parade his wife in front of everybody because of her beauty. And I could perhaps hear at least modern day Queen Vashti singing some Aretha Franklin, R-E-S-P-C-T. And she refused to walk in because she wanted some, what y'all, some respect. But verse 12 tells us now that the king has an anger issue. And I want you to remember that in the text. He responds, verse 12, in anger. And so he goes to his advisors and he asks, what should he do with this queen of his? Because in verse 17, his advisors tell him, king, you better make an example of her. Because if you don't make an example of her, there's going to be a women's liberation movement up here. And we don't want all of our wives singing R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And so what does the king do? He strips the queen of her title and he dismisses her. Pretty extreme. I want you to remember that about King Ahasuerus. Well, we find ourselves in chapter two. After the king cools off in verse one, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus was abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So here we see he cools off a little bit. And he realizes that in the heat of the moment, he made a very poor decision. Again, he is moved by his emotions. But the problem is now that he's finally relaxed and he's rethinking his decision, Persian law did not allow for amendments. Once something was decreed, it was final. Once the law was instituted, you could not change it, which means that the king was stuck with no queen. So his officials suggest in order to fix that an empire-wide search for a new queen. So they set out to gather the most beautiful virgins in all of the land. Josephus tells us, that out of the millions of women in the entire Persian empire, they narrowed it down to 400. And then out of those 400 women from the millions, one came to the surface. And her name was Esther. And her older cousin was Mordecai. And so his officials suggested that she be that new queen. And verse 7 of chapter 2 tells us he was bringing up, this is talking about Mordecai, Hadassah. That is, her name is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And then verse 9 says, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. That's talking about the eunuchs because the eunuchs were searching for a woman. And so what you see here, here is that Queen Esther was a, a triple threat. She had a beautiful body. She had a lovely face. And verse nine tells us that she had a winning personality. But what none of them knew about Esther is that she was a Jew. Now the king had a harem that was set up where all of the women that were the potentials to be the queen were all in one place. In verse 16 of chapter 2, it tells us, 
And when Esther was taken to the king, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. What a powerful story. Rags to riches. She goes from being a part of a a, a captive nation to now being on top of the, the greatest nation in the known world. And then verse 19, we read, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. See, the king has no idea who his queen is. He just knows that she's beautiful. He just knows that she's lovely to look at and that she has a winning personality. But I want you to remember the fact that he did not know that she was a Jew. But here we also see in verse 20 that Mordecai is with her. So Esther must have in some way influenced the king to also bring her uncle into some prominent place within the kingdom because he is there in the palace. And we find something very interesting in verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So here Mordecai is right in perfect position to see a potential assassination of the king. He hears the plot, and he actually informs Esther, it says in verse 21, to tell the king what is about to occur. And in verse 23, it says that when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded, everybody say recorded, in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Don't forget that it was recorded just what happened. Mordecai just so happened to be at the king's gate, and he just so happened to be in a position in a place where he could hear this whispering between two eunuchs, and they were talking about how they wanted to take the king out, and he overhears this, and he goes to Esther, and he tells her, I need you to know something. They're going to try to kill the king. I need you to go and tell Mordecai, or the king. But I want you to also realize that the king had no idea that it was Mordecai. He assumed that Esther, that lovely queen, was the one who had saved his life. And then we find ourselves in chapter 3. Well, every good story has a good villain. And here we are introduced to the villain. And his name is Haman. Verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. 
And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not, what everyone, bow. He didn't bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, Mordecai would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand. For he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now here it says that Haman was an Agagite in verse 1. Well, that's a key to this story. You see, Israel, years and years before this, about a thousand years before this, actually was attacked by the Amalekites when they came out of Egypt. And God had actually cursed the Amalekites for attacking his people in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Well, 400 years later, King Saul actually conquers these Amalekites. And the prophet Samuel chops the king up. And do you want to know his name? Agag. Therefore, Agagites, which are his descendants. So Haman is actually a descendant of King Agag. Now you can see perhaps why Mordecai was so furious. Because in chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us that Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. Now Mordecai just isn't any kind of a Jew. Mordecai was from the descendants of Kish. Well, you know where Kish comes from? Which tribe of Israel? Benjamin. And guess who was the king that came from the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul. And what did King Saul do to the Agagites? He chopped up King Agag. So now imagine now Mordecai standing here knowing that this guy named Haman is an Agagite. And how Haman and an Agagite looking at Mordecai saying, oh yeah, I would just love for you to bow to me. After all that your people, the Jews, did to my people, oh, to have a Jew bow down to me, what a wonderful thing that would be. And so verse 6 tells us in chapter 3 that Haman sought to kill all the Jews. And in verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month to the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So here what you see is Haman is trying to figure out how he can destroy all of these Jews. And so he wants an omen. And so he's casting lots day after day, month after month, year after year, so he can get some omen from the gods on what is the perfect time to set it up so that he can ultimately destroy every single one of the Jews. I don't want you to forget that pure or what's called casting lots. And then in verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of kingdom. 
Their laws are different from those of the other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also. Do to them as it seems good to you. Remember we talked about the king, King Ahasuerus, how he just seems to make decisions without thinking. He just gets emotional and he makes a decision just like he did with his first queen, Vashti. And now here again, without asking any questions, he just makes an emotional decision. And now all of the Jews are doomed. And so it was done. Verse 15, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Can you feel the tone drop in the story? Why was there confusion? Because the Jews had heard the word. And in chapter 4 of verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. You see, here is a part of the story where I'm sure there were many who asked, where is God? Where is God in this injustice? That's why my tears sometimes flow when I listen to Andrew Peterson's song, The Silence of God. It's enough to drive a man crazy. The silence of God is enough to break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's even been sane. The silence of God when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod. And the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It reminds me of Job when he had lost everything. His children, his health, his property. And he cried out, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you simply look at me. You see, where is God right now? Where is God when the bottom drops? Where is God in the miscarriage? Where is God in the abuse? Where is God in the midst of your betrayal? Why is he silent in the injustice? When the financial hardship hits, why do you hear only crickets? When the familial discord is so pronounced, where is God? Where is God right now in the midst of my life? Where is God? Where is God? 
where after a time of mourning, Mordecai comes to Esther and he tells her the news. You've got to talk to your husband, the king, about this. In verse 10, we hear her response to her cousin, Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak, who's a eunuch, and he commanded, and she commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther tells her cousin, have the people fast. Have them fast and pray. Please pray for me for three days. And then I will go into the king. And if I perish, I perish. In chapter 5, Esther goes after three days before the king. And you can feel the tension in the story. This is, if you will, one of the high points. If she goes before the king and he does not accept her, then she will lose her life. He has to extend the scepter. And on the third day, Esther put her royal robes on, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king then asks in verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Once again, we see the king's personality here. It's a little extreme, right? I mean, do you see kind of a habit with respect to this guy's personality, right? Queen Vashti just wants a little bit of respect. Just respect me a little bit and you out. Haman comes is like, hey, you know what I'm saying? There's a people group. I don't even know who they are. You don't need to know who they are. But all I know is they tripping. They tripping? Okay, cool. Let's get some drinks. Here's the decree. Let's get rid of them fools. And now here, 
He just looks at his queen and is like, just take half the kingdom. This is very important for our story. And so what does she say? She says to her king, I just want to feast. I want to feast with you and Haman. And so they feast on that day. And then the king asks again. And here she takes even another risk, trying his patience. Can we do it tomorrow? The text doesn't tell us why she wants to do it the next day, but but she needs some time. And so he extends it to her and says, yes, we will have a feast again tomorrow. Well, Haman, he is so excited. Haman goes on his way happy that not only did he get one invitation to sit before the king, Haman got two invitations to sit to the king. And so he's on his way, and he's celebrating. And as he's walking out of the palace, guess who Haman runs into? His good old friend, Mordecai. And of course, how do you think Mordecai responds to Haman? Do you think Mordecai bows down? No, Mordecai just walks Haman, just watches Haman just walk on by. And so, Haman is furious. He goes back bragging to his wife about the king that was going to invite him to another invitation. But, but at the same time, he's, he's displeased with the fact that he had been disrespected again by a Jew. Not only any type of Jew, Mordecai. Mordecai, the one who's from the, the tribe of Benjamin. That tribe that had a king named Saul that, that chopped up our descendant king. Well, his wife and friends begin to give him some suggestions. And his wife suggests that he build a gallows to hang Mordecai on. And that he would ask the king when he gets to the feast on the next day, that if the king would actually allow for Mordecai, revealing to him that Mordecai is a Jew, and have him hang on the gallows that he and his family just built. So I'm sure Haman is saying, I got him now. I got him now. But at the same time that Haman and his family are building that gallows to hang Mordecai on, in chapter 6, the same time, the king has insomnia. Verse 1, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, again, he can't sleep. So he has to pick something that's going, that, you know, some of that stuff that you read that makes you fall asleep. You know what I'm saying? The, the things that make you kind of go, okay, yeah, I'm good, and it'll put him to sleep. So what does he do? Read me some chronicles. Read me some stuff that's just got a bunch of names and events that has nothing exciting about it, and then hopefully that will put me to sleep. So verse 2, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king is wide awake. And he's actually enjoying this story. And in verse 3, it says, and the king said, well, well, hold up, stop, 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 stop. What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? 
The king's young men who attended said, nothing's been done for him. Now, I don't know if you remember what they're talking about. Do you remember what they're talking about? They're talking about those two men that that tried to kill the king, remember? It's those two men that Mordecai, who just so happened to be in the place where they were plotting, and he actually told Esther, these dudes are trying to kill the king. But remember, the king didn't know it was Mordecai. The king thought it was who that told him about this? His queen, Esther. Notice the king didn't see Mordecai's deed, but clearly someone else did. Well, right in the moment, right in the moment, right in the specific moment where he reads this deed that Mordecai had done for him, saving his life by thwarting an assassination plot, in that moment, guess who walks in? Haman. Oh, and he's glowing. He is so happy. He's like, man, I got something for y'all. King, oh, king, I got something for y'all. I know you've been having a hard time sleeping, but let me just share something with you. Verse four. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows. So he's there to tell him, you got to hang this man. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, let me ask you a question, Haman. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, who do you think Haman was talking about? He thought the king was talking about who? He's talking about me. Oh, yeah. Oh, this day is just getting so much better. Over, I'm just loving it. So Haman just said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Okay, here, here's what I got. For the man to whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden on, whose head on a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be to the man who the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, I think that's a great idea. Take the robes and the horse as just you have said, And do so to who? Mordecai. Oh, man, that must have been classic. I got, I got, I mean, what must have Haman done in that moment? I just would have loved to be in a fly on the wall to see that man's face. Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes. He makes Haman take them. Haman takes the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. Oh, my goodness. He must be losing his mind right now. Dressing Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. 
But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. He's totally embarrassed. And verse 13 says, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, listen to this, If Mordecai, before whom you have already begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. He's a Jew. And the question becomes is, where is God in all of these details? Well, we find ourselves in chapter 7. In chapter 7, Esther is going to have her second and final meal with her king. And verse 1 tells us, so the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish? Queen Esther, it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I had found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me, for my wish is my people, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared to what this loss is to the king. Then King Oasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? Who is there to do this? Remember, the king is what? He's emotional. He's hair trigger, right? He be doing crazy stuff. Don't be thinking. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy. So now she's egging him on. She's like, I know this cat. I know he's about to lose his brain right now. So let me just kind of poke in a little bit. And then, I mean, can you feel the drama? Everybody's sitting around the table. Haman is sitting there, right? And then she just points, and he's the one. Oh, no. Oh, dog. What is Haman doing right now, dog? Then Haman was terrified as he should be. And then look at verse 7. Remember the king's personality. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. So he's, he's a little tipsy too. And he went into the palace garden. So now he's in the palace garden and he's probably pacing. But Haman stayed in with Esther to beg for his life. Come on, man. That's a dumb decision, but that's okay. For Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And then the king, as he's out in the, in the garden, the king returns from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, 
Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they all just rushed in and covered Haman's face. So what is the king thinking? Man, you're trying to come on to my wife, man. What's wrong with you, dude? You done already threatened to kill her people, and now you're trying to take her from me? Now he, he's, come on, man. You're not thinking. You got to relax. The dude already knows he's about to get killed. He's begging for his life, but the king didn't see that, did he? Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and the attendants of the king said this, which is so ironic. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king says, oh, wow, Haman built a gallows? The eunuch said, yep, he built a gallows, 50 cubits high. Man, dog, you making my job easy. Verse 10, hang him on that. You see, you see the emotions like he, extremes, right? Half my kingdom. I'm going to give you half my kingdom. Just get Vashti out of here. I don't even want a queen no more. Hang him on that. And so now we see the irony. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Now, here's something interesting about the story of Esther. God's name is never mentioned once in the entire book. It's the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned at all. But the question is, is where is God? In the book of Esther. Well, if you've been listening to this story, you will see quite quite clearly, he was everywhere. And he was in places in a way that no other book in the entire Bible communicates. He speaks loudest in the book of Esther and yet never says one word. You see, what we see in the book of Esther is God in the details. King Oesuerus, due to his angry personality, lost his mind and dismissed his wife Vashti. God in the details. Persian laws are irrevocable, meaning that you have to get a new queen. God in the details. Millions of women in the kingdom, and it so happened to be the most beautiful one, was a Jew. God is not silent. What happened? She was an orphan. Her parents actually died. A tragedy. And yet in that tragedy, we see that God is in your suffering. God needed her parents to give her those stunning looks and that wonderful personality. Mordecai raised her in such a way so she would be prepared for such a time as this. God in the details. Out of all of the women, Esther finds favor in the eyes of the king. God in the affections of the heart. Because of his relationship to Esther, Mordecai is in the palace and just so happened to overhear the plot of the kill of the king. God in the details. Mordecai saves the king and Esther, and yet 
she gets credit. Yet the palace historian didn't forget to record what happened so that when the king didn't have the ability to sleep, he actually would be able to read about what Mordecai had done. God in the details. God was in the pure, or what you will, the casting of the lots. A whole entire year for God to set everything up so that he could save his people. God in the waiting. God gives Mordecai a prophetic voice. He looks at Esther and says, God has done this for such a time as this. God in the details. He tells the people to fast and pray because in the fasting and praying that God moves and acts on behalf of his people. God is not silent. In her courage, she wins favor and gets the golden scepter. God in the details. Haman's wife and friends suggest the gallows. God's instrument of justice comes through the suggestion of another. God in the details. That night, while Haman is plotting, God is in the business of insomnia. Because the king can't sleep, God is in the details. Out of all the books that he could have read that night, he, he reads the chronicles. And out of all the chronicles of all the things that happened in Persia, the one thing that the eunuchs read is how Mordecai saved the king. God in the details. Haman wanted Mordecai to bow, but instead Haman bows to Mordecai and parades him through the streets for the glory of God. God's got a sense of humor. The timing is just right. As the king is loving Mordecai, Queen Esther, it has his heart, and all of a sudden there's a double whammy, and then he comes in and, and wants to kill him, and right when he tries to come in, God is in the details. Esther tells the king, the king has an anger problem, he tries to cool off, the perfect character dysfunction to move God's agenda forward. God in the details. Mistaken action as he walks to see Haman begging for his life as he's assaulting his wife. God in the details. Haman the Agagite from the very gallows he erected for the man the Jew. God now saves the Jews instead and hangs him in the process. God is not silent. And in so many ways, sometimes that's what we think, do we not? Jesus, you're in heaven. I know you're cheering me on, God. I, I know you're God, but, but I don't think that you're really feeling me. God, you're not with me in the sense that you're wearing my challenges down here. You don't know what I'm really feeling in the details of my flesh as I try to live life down here. When I'm confused, when I'm frustrated, when I'm alone. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I wonder, do you really get me, Lord? In my battle with addiction, in the depths of my depression, in the midst of my struggle to find purpose and meaning, God, I know you're there, but I don't know if you're really there in the details. And if you are, maybe I'm Haman and not Esther. I'm sure that's how the Jews felt in Esther's day. And what was the assurance that all the details were working in the Jews' favor? One clue gives assurance that he's not distant or silent. When his wife tells him, in chapter 6, verse 13, when he tells Haman, if Mordecai, before whom you begun to fall, 
is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. You see, here's the reality. God is never silent and never distant and never against those who belong to him. It was almost a prophetic voice that came out of Haman's wife. If you're telling me this man is of the Jews, the Jews belong to God. And although it may appear and seem that he is distant and not in the details and silent, he's going to show up. You see, one of the holidays that the Jews celebrate even to this day, you see it in chapter 9. It's called Purim. It came from the word what I said when Haman was casting lots, poured. And it is during that time that Haman didn't realize that although it may seem like the rolling of dice, and there's really no rhyme or reason to it, God is even in the details of the dice. And so what the Jews celebrate is, especially the children, they actually dress up in costumes when they celebrate Purim. And the reason they actually dressed up in costumes is because the book of Esther reminds them of one real truth about God. God is in disguise. God in disguise. And he's always pulling the strings in the background. And here's where the central name of the Christian story and the Christmas story comes to life. You see, the book of Esther is really an embodiment of what God is for all those who belong to him. You see, it was prophesied in this book, the Old Testament, that God would be in the details. That he would be in the details for a deliverance far greater than what you saw with Haman. A deliverance that every single one of us wants to experience. And it is a deliverance from the destruction of sin. All of the challenges, all of the issues, all of the things that hurt and burden us deep down inside is because our world is broken and we're broken. It's because we know deep down inside that if we could just get rid of the sin within and the sin without, we would finally gain the rest and contentment that our hearts long for. That is the deliverance that every single person breathing longs to have. That is what every politician is fighting for, every uh, entrepreneur is fighting for, every individual, tall, short, small is fighting for, every person of every race, every culture. Everyone is trying to figure out how to deal with the brokenness that is in them and outside them that they might experience deliverance. Well, at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, they began to question, God, are you in the details? Because there was 400 years of silence before the book of Matthew. Where are you, God? Have you abandoned your people? But see, they forgot. The Old Testament had prophesied. The Messiah, by definition, is God in the details. The Messiah would be called a Nazarene, 
Isaiah chapter 11, God in the details. The Messiah would be called out of Egypt, Hosea chapter 11, God in the details. The Messiah would be born a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, God in the details. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 2, God in the details. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah chapter 7, God in the details. Those were the prophecies, but there was 400 years of silence. And then the silence was broken. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God in the details. You see, our sin is the greatest problem. Is why we live our lives in ruin and why our world is in ruin. And for those who don't belong to Jesus, God is silent. Because sin separates us from him. And all of the goodness that we can ultimately gain in Jesus. And that's the Christmas story. The only way to solve that problem is he had to actually be born into the details. When you wonder, God, do you really know what it feels like for me to be me? Remember Emmanuel, God with us. Because he walked in our skin. He experienced our joys. He was riddled with our pains. He was misunderstood, ridiculed, rejected, hated, loved, abandoned, hungry, tired, confused. He knew loss. He knew sadness. He knows what it is to not have enough time for everybody, and he knows what it is to not get a break. And he knows fear. The fear of having to step into a courage that not might, like Esther, but would cost him his life. If I perish, I perish. And yet while in the midst of dying on a cross for you and me, Jesus actually knew silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son of the living God asked, where is God? But he asked, where is God? So that even when it feels like God is not there, for those who belong to him moving forward, he will always be in your details. Because he is Emmanuel. God with us. And so that means that Romans 8.28 is true. 
that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. As I conclude, I want you to notice what Mordecai says in chapter 4 as a potential application for you this morning. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I want to give one application, actually two. I want you to hear me in this. There are people right now in your life, I'm sure, and you may be that person, where you're asking or they're asking, where is God? The details look so sideways that to actually believe that God is present and working good is a far-fetched reality. But let me say this to you. God may want you to be his voice to them. You may be being called to be the voice of God to another that's asking the question, where is God? You see, God has placed each one of us where we are. And he is speaking to some of you potentially right now and saying, I need you to be my voice of deliverance to this person or that person. A listening ear. A comforting meal. A financial blessing. God has put his people here on this earth to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives, to be his voice. And so for some of us, God is calling us to use our influence, our power, our positions, just like Esther, to be God's caring, compassionate voice in the midst of someone's silence. Where is God calling you to extend his voice where the pain is most prevalent in the circle of your influence? And secondly and lastly, you may be asking, where is God? In the chaos that appears careless, in the situations that are happening that seem so meaningless, where maybe even still the darkness is just unrelenting, you ask yourself, where is God? When the loneliness is blowing across the landscape of your life, and and these times for some of you are so deeply lonely, and you ask yourself, where is God? Where is God when you need direction, when you need clarity, when you need comfort? Pastor James sent me this text and I want to read this quote this morning 
John MacArthur says, if we could condense all the truths of Christmas into only three words, these words would be God with us. That is the greatest gift of Christmas. That his very name, his very name, you got to let that land. It's not what he does. It's who he is. He is an ever-present God. It is his name and his nature to be Emmanuel. God's with us. Which means, even though you might not believe it, he's in your details. If you belong to him. And God, maybe you need to ask right now, God, I don't see you in the details. It really feels like a desert. It really feels like there's no water. It really feels like you're as far away as can obviously be. I want you to even pray right now if that's how you're feeling. God, will you give me the faith to believe that you're in the details? Will you give me the eyes to see all of the patterns and the way you're moving each of the small, inconceivable, and what appear to be insignificant things toward a good that is beyond my comprehension? God, will you give me eyes to see it? Because the reality is, your story is Esther's story in Jesus. Lastly, to not belong to Jesus is to not have these promises. And if somebody invited you, somebody invited you today, they want you to know this wonderful promise. Because every single one of us is longing for a God to be in our details. Every heart yearns for it. But this promise is only for those who are in Jesus. So like that picture that my wife loves of Santa bowing down to the major. If you want this promise to be yours, where God is going to take all of your details and orchestrate them in a way that you look and see a wonderful panoply of God's artistic work, all you got to do is bow down to Jesus. Make him your Lord, your Savior, and your treasure. And you will find a God in the details in a way that you could have never imagined or hoped. Let's pray. God, wherever each individual finds themselves today, I just pray that you will be grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. God, for those who are struggling to see you in the details, will you give them a bird's eye view? just like we had this morning. They didn't have that luxury, but afterward they were able to look back and see you were in every moment, in every moment. And God, that is true of us who are in Jesus because his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And you promised that you will never leave us 
will forsake us. So let that promise rest and root itself deeply in those who know you. And for those, God, who don't know you as their Lord and their Savior and their treasure, help them to see that there's no greater gift than to have this kind of God in their details. In Jesus' name.